Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 6. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 4 through 6. And considering faith before the flood. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, give attention to God's holy word. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have gathered because we believe that you are and that you are the rewarder of those that diligently seek you. And so we have gathered to seek your face diligently through the means that you have appointed, asking you to bless the means of preaching as that by which you have ordained to manifest eternal life to us. And we pray that you would do this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it's probably not news to any of you that the day in which we live is a man-centered age. And in this man-centered age, uh, many go about life asking themselves, how will this benefit me? What do I get out of this? In many of our interactions in life, we, we judge many of our decisions based on this question, which car will you buy? How will it benefit me? What food are you going to eat? How will it benefit me? Where am I going to live? How will that benefit me? Sadly, also in our day, many choose their religion based on this question. How does this benefit me? Now, in many things, this is a good question to ask. Food should benefit you. And so it's proper to ask, how will this donut benefit me? There are benefits to donuts. They're different than the benefits of broccoli. But it's appropriate to ask those questions in certain things. In other things, it's not appropriate. Especially when it comes to our relationship with God and our religion... Beginning with the question, how does this benefit me, is the first step down the path of idolatry. Idolatry is a real danger in all ages of the church. We just read it in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul exhorts the people, don't go to idolatry. 1 John chapter 5, the the apostle 
ends his first epistle saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Paul warns of idolatry in Colossians 3.5, and he calls idolatry covetousness. He says, flee from covetousness, which is idolatry. What we learn from this, quite simply, is that idolatry is making a god after our own desires. Idolatry is making a god that answers the question, how does this benefit me? What do I want to get out of this? Well, I want to get this, so I'll make a god who gives me this. (coughs) Idolatry is asking of God, how does this benefit me? Many have shipwrecked their souls through covetousness. In the book of Acts, when the Spirit works upon the heart, the the first question that the people ask is not, how does this benefit me? You remember the scene in Pentecost, Peter is preaching with fire from heaven. The people are not cut to the heart and then say, but what are you going to do for me, Peter? When they're cut to the heart, the question is, what must I do to be saved? What, What must I do? To escape this wrath, the question has a different focus, doesn't it? There's another set of preferences in view, not the preferences of the sinner, but the preferences of God. When the soul is made alive by the Spirit's effectual calling, the soul no longer follows what is good in its own sight. The soul begins to follow the things that are good in God's sight. The soul begins to ask the question, how can I be made worthy of the reward of eternal life? You see, when the gospel goes forth and the Spirit's power joins the preaching of the gospel, the gospel sets before sinners glory beyond imagination. But along with that, promise of glory is also the conviction that I'm not worthy of this. I don't deserve this. I cannot attain to what God has promised. Eternal life is not for me because of my sins. But as God draws the soul to salvation, the soul begins to ask, how can I be made worthy? How can I come to the God that I hunger and thirst for? How can I be made worthy of eternal life? Eternal life is God himself. The reward of the gospel is the almighty God. In all of his infinite goodness, glory, grace, love, truth, power, sovereignty, infinity, He is the reward of the gospel. As Christ taught in John 17, 3, this is life eternal, that they might know God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the reward that God offers to sinners in the gospel. It is not a long existence. Eternal life doesn't mean you're going to live for a very long time. It is not the indulgence of the flesh. 
Eternal life doesn't mean that you'll be happy in the carnal ways that you are happy now. Eternal life is God Himself. It is a spiritual union with the Eternal One. It is a transformation of the sinful soul into a holy vessel fit to receive the Master's blessing. That's the reward that's held out to us in the Gospel. The New Testament calls this reward glory. Paul uses this language in several places in his letters. Christ, who is your life, when he appears, you also shall appear with him in glory. This glory is the very glory of God that he pours into his vessels of honor who are worthy to receive it. So that the question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be made worthy to receive eternal life? It's really the only question that matters in this life. All things that we get benefits from, donuts and broccoli, all things that bring us benefits, lawful benefits, good benefits, things that we should be thankful for, all of those things are going to pass away. Paul the Apostle says, meats for the belly or food for the belly, and the belly for food. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. The reward that God offers to sinners is himself. Now who is worthy of this? Who who is worthy to receive the smile of heaven for all eternity? Man, in himself, is not worthy, both before and after the fall. Think with me for a little bit. We're going to go go a little theological here. God is offering you eternal glory. Man, even before he fell, did not measure up. There is no way that a finite creature can obey to earn an infinite reward. There's an imbalance. So man, even before the fall, in himself, could never be made worthy for this reward. So who is worthy? Well, by reaching into the past, our author reaches back into the ancient days of mankind. By reaching back into the past, our author shows us that those who are worthy to receive eternal life, those who are worthy, as we sang in Psalm 15, to dwell in God's holy hill, have always been and always will be those who have faith. Specifically, in God's sight, only those who have faith are worthy of the reward. Only those who have faith are worthy of the reward. 
As we look at this passage, we're going to notice three things in this passage with our three verses. Verse 4, righteous in God's sight by faith. Verse 5, pleasant in God's sight by faith. And then verse 6, worthy in God's sight by faith. Righteous in God's sight by faith, pleasant in God's sight by faith, and worthy in God's sight by faith. And so we begin in verse 4 with righteous in God's sight by faith. You notice that in the, in the middle of the verse, the, the, the main idea that uh, the author brings out about Abel is that he obtained witness that he was righteous in God's sight. This is a reference, of course, to Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. You may want to have your finger on that passage of Scripture. It's in that passage where after Adam and Eve had sinned, God made a promise and he clothed them with animal skins. Then the first generation of offspring are now coming into their own. They're, they're full-grown men at this point, And they have, as it were, claimed the covenant for themselves. They are walking in their own faith. As far as the author of Hebrews is concerned, he chooses Abel as his first example. Because in the pages of Scripture, Abel is the first one to receive clear testimony that God was pleased with him. Abel is the first character in Scripture to receive this approbation. Uh, As I said, well, uh, 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 the very beginning of the verse, in verse 4, he says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. Remember what we said during the baptism. Faith looks to the promise. Faith looks to God's promises. That is its total worth. That is all of its power. All it can do is look to the promise of God. And it trusts in the promise of God for God's sake alone. Turn with me to Genesis 3, where we get a taste of the promise that God had made at this point. Genesis 3.15, very famously, is the promise at this point in world history. The Lord says to the serpent, after he has cursed him, well, in, in addition to his curse, this is continuing the curse upon the serpent, says, because you've done this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So at this point in world history, God intervenes after Adam had fallen under the temptation of Satan and he makes a promise that the seed of the woman will defeat you. The promised offspring of mankind will come, will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. This is the gospel that Abel was looking to, of a promised seed. Paul says in various places in the New Testament, Christ is that seed. He goes so far at the end of the book of Romans to tell the church that as you follow Christ, Satan will be crushed under your feet soon. 
He takes the language of this promise and applies it to the church of Christ. This is the promise that Abel was looking to. This is the promise that his father looked to. Look down at the bottom in verse 20. It's not expressly said that Adam was redeemed, but I think there's good evidence that Adam believed the promise. Look at verse 20. After the Lord says all these things, after Eve had tempted Adam, after Adam had rightly said, at least partially, the woman that you gave to me gave me the apple and I ate, After all of this disaster had come upon the pristine creation, death, sin, and hell, through the temptation of the serpent, the seduction of the woman, and the disobedience of the man, God makes a promise and says, the seed of the woman will be your salvation. Look at what Adam does. He calls his wife's name Eve because she's the mother of all living. Now, how can Adam do that? Not by looking at Eve. Not by looking at his experiences with Eve. Not by looking at what had happened up to that point. The only way Adam can do this is by looking to the promise. Because God has promised the seed of the woman will be salvation, she must be the mother of all living, exercising faith in the promise. Adam exercises this faith. Notice verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. I think we are to understand this like a sacrament. Adam looks to the promise, he exercises faith, and then the Lord God gives them a visible sign and seal of the faith that they have exercised. They are clothed with the skins of the animal, covering their nakedness, covering their shame, making them righteous in God's sight. This is an aside. This is a little bit off script. But just notice, God himself is acting as a minister of the word. He preaches the gospel, and then he administers a sacrament. He preaches the promise, and then he clothes them with the skin of the animals. Very interesting, isn't it? That's an aside. You can do with that one what you will. So what do we learn from Adam's example? He exercises faith, and then God, giving him an example that the seal or the sacramental sign of this faith is that an animal must die for you to be clothed. Now we're ready to look at Abel. Abel follows suit. He brings an animal sacrifice. I think following the example of Adam, but also corresponding to the promise. He will crush your head, but you shall bruise his heel. The salvation that was needed was deliverance from death. So whatever this seed is going to do, he's going to have to die to deliver us from death. It also imitates, as I said, the tradition, so to speak, handed down from God to Adam. An animal had to die for Adam to be clothed. And so Abel recognizes, I have to offer an animal as the substitute for my soul. Notice also what Abel brings in chapter 4, verse 4. He brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. 
Abel brings the best of the best that he has to offer. The firstborn the, the, was highly regarded in the Old Testament as the best of the flock because they're the first, they're the strongest, they represent God's blessing. And the fat of these animals, the best parts of the animal, are brought to the altar. Abel brings the best of the best. Now, notice why he is accepted. This gets now to the author of Hebrews' point. He says it was by faith that Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. Look at what Moses writes in Genesis 4, verse 4. The Lord respected Abel and his offering. The order is extremely important here. Abel is accepted personally first, and then his offerings are accepted. His sacrifice is acceptable because he has been made acceptable. His sacrifice is worthy to be received because Abel has been made worthy to receive. His sacrifice did not make him worthy. Keep this in mind, brothers and sisters. The sacrifice did not make Abel righteous. He was already righteous, and then the sacrifice was approved. This is what the author means when he says that it was by faith that Abel offered a better sacrifice. The commentators uh, make a big deal out of the order of the words here. He had respect unto Abel and then unto his sacrifice. This is a picture of justification. In justification, through the promise and by faith in the promise, God accepts sinners as personally righteous for the righteousness of Christ alone. Not for their works, not for their obedience, not for their worship, not for their feelings, not for their experiences, not for anything in themselves, but purely for his grace in the promise. God had respect to Abel because Abel trusted the promise. That's it. And because Abel was accepted, his offering was accepted. Abel was accepted first, and then his works were accepted. It is not the other way around. Westminster Confession 16.6, if you want to look that up on your own time, speaks to this idea that the good works of believers are not acceptable in themselves. In themselves, they're full of sin and they're worthless. But because God has accepted me, he accepts my works also. I've used this example before, but I think it gets the point across very well. My kids love to draw. In themselves, their drawings are not very remarkable. But because I accept them, I accept their drawings and reward and bless their drawings because they are mine. That's how the father treats his children. Because you are his, he accepts your works, just like Abel, justified by faith. Now we need to keep in mind that to be worthy in God's sight means, first of all, you must be made righteous. God is a righteous God, and in his sight, only the righteous will stand. 
He must look upon you as a law keeper. That's how you are made right in God's sight. That's what must happen. For those that have broken the law are worthy of the punishment of the law. That is death. And one of the things we can very easily forget is that God is just. He is absolutely just. Thomas Jefferson one time famously said, I tremble to think that God is just. So to be right in the eyes of the one who is justice itself, you must be just. You must be righteous. Those that are worthy of death cannot receive the reward. And therefore, to be made righteous in God's sight can only happen by faith. That is the only way we can be made righteous in God's sight. All the works of the law, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, all of the good intentions and good vibrations cannot make you righteous. Only faith in the promise. Look at Galatians 3, 19 through 20. Paul reasons in this same way. Galatians 3, 19 through 20. Galatians 3.19, Paul writes and says, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should, be made, should come to whom the promise was made, was appointed through angels in the hand of a mediator. Skipping down to verse 21. Is the law against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin. The purpose of the law is to condemn us. The purpose of the law, as Paul says in Galatians 2, is to slay us. It is to bring us to our knees recognizing, I am not worthy. And then God shows you Christ. As Paul says, that the promise in Christ might be given to those who believe to those who have faith, to those who trust in the promise. We need to ask ourselves some questions in light of this. Why do you trust in yourselves? Now some of you may already be answering me and saying, but I don't. Some of you, I feel that you do. By your words and actions. You betray that you trust in yourselves. You judge your brothers. You boast in yourself and your works. You take pride in your knowledge. You are satisfied with your experiences. What is all of this but a self-righteous trusting in ourselves? It is hard to express these things because the truths of Scripture are so far beyond our understanding. If we only knew the glories that were awaiting God's people, if we only had a taste of the joy of heaven, 
we would put our hands upon our mouths and cease boasting in ourselves. Because the reward that he has offered to us is eternal life. The blessedness that those who have eternal life are going to enjoy. I mean, read the book of Revelation. You will walk with Christ in white. You will mount up on the steeds of heaven and ride down the armies of demons. Who is worthy of these things? Nobody is. So how dare we boast in God's sight as if we were anything? Likewise, even if we had never fallen, even if Adam had never sinned, we still would not be worthy of this. We still could not earn this reward. And so what do we need to learn from this doctrine of justification by faith? Paul says it in Romans chapter 3. Boasting is excluded. By what law? By the law of works? No. By the law of faith. Cease from pride. You know, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 14, the author writes, and the Lord is speaking, he says, Behold, his soul who is lifted up is not upright within him. It's a very interesting play on words there, isn't it? His soul who is lifted up in pride is not upright in my sight. The soul that's exalted is not righteous in my sight. Even more, the word upright in Habakkuk means pleasing in Hebrew. It doesn't quite mean righteous, but it means pleasing. So what the Lord is saying is that those who are proud in God's sight are not pleasing to him. Now, outwardly, men will praise you if you praise yourself. Men will shower praises upon you if you promote yourself. That's how most of our economy works. Get a social media presence, promote yourself, and you'll make money. Men will praise you, but men look on the outward appearance. Only God can see the heart. And if your heart is lifted up, you are unworthy in God's sight. Because he does not see as man sees. He sees the heart and not the outward appearance. The very next part of that verse in Habakkuk, though, says, though the, the one whose heart is lifted up is not upright within him, but the just shall live by faith. Those that are justified in God's sight are those that humbly trust in the promise. There are others of you here that I know you recognize your true worth in God's sight. There are those here whose hearts grace has taught to fear, as the old hymn goes. There are those of you here who have not only heard with the ear that God is just, but with the illumination of the Spirit have been persuaded that His justice will come to you. That your sins are in the light of His countenance. Your secret sins will be laid out on judgment day before men and angels. I know there are some of you here that the Spirit has persuaded of that truth. You have been convinced by the demonstration of the Spirit. 
Remember Hebrews 11, 1. It is the demonstration of things not seen. You have been convinced by the demonstration of the Spirit. You have seen by faith the irresistible evidence of the judgment seat of Christ before whom we all have to stand. And you felt in your souls the shame that awaits all those who are unworthy in God's sight. You have tasted glory, and you know that you're not worthy of glory. You've been convinced of your true worth, which is nothing and less than nothing. And you have been delivered to the promise. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. Jesus Christ is the Savior of those who do not trust in themselves, but trust in God's promise that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. His sacrifice was better because he trusted in the promise, not because of anything that Abel did. This is what it means to be righteous in God's sight. Let me apply this practically to to some of you. Well, to all of you. This is the first place that Satan will attack. Remember Paul says in Galatians, uh, Ephesians 6, with the shield of faith, we, we fend off the fiery darts of the wicked one. The wicked one and his attacks against you are to cause you to doubt God's word. Not only the bad parts that we don't like, bad, so to speak, but also the good parts that are beyond our imagination. Before you sin, the temptation goes like this. That's not really a sin. God won't care. God will be gracious. He'll forgive you. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Those are the temptations. After you sin, the temptations look like this. God can never forgive you. You're worthless. How could you do that? God does not love you. Denying all the promises of God. By faith, look to God's promises. Look to the promises that are revealed to you in Scripture and that were signed and sealed to you in the sacrament of baptism. I love infant baptism. Not only because I think it's true in the Scriptures, but because the picture is perfect. How does God save us? He saves you like a little baby, taking you up in His arms like a minister of the Word, Genesis 3, preaching the promise to you and then sealing you with the promise while you lay there, helpless and unable to do anything. That's how God saves you and makes you righteous. Not only do we need to be made righteous, we need to be made pleasant in God's sight. That's verse 5. We need to be made pleasant in God's sight. This, of course, is an, uh, a reference to Genesis 5, 21 through 24. Enoch, by faith, was taken away so that he did not see death 
quotes Genesis 5. Uh, he was not found because God had taken him. Before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. He was pleasant in God's sight. Think about this for a moment. You, by faith and the grace of Christ, can be the delight of heaven. God can look upon you and smile upon you and rejoice in you, as he says in the prophets, as a father rejoices in the son that he loves. That's what it means to be pleasant in God's sight. That's what Enoch was by faith. Enoch stands out in Genesis 5 because he's the only patriarch who is said to not die. You read that chapter, it's very stark. Adam lived so many years and he died. The next guy lived so many years and he died. The next guy lived so many years and he died. The next guy lived so many years and he died. Enoch walked with God and didn't die because God took him. It's a testimony to what awaits those whom God is pleased with. The King James Version has a a better translation here of the word. Your version may say taken away. Mine has taken away, New King James. The, The Greek word is probably better translated as translated. He was transitioned to a different state. He was in this state as he walked with God, and God, because he was pleased with him, because he was pleased with his faith, translated him into a different state. Paul describes this state in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll simply read. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 58. Paul describes what this transition is. But some will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of man, another flesh of animals, another flesh of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies, terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial one and the glory of the terrestrial one is another. There is one glory of the sun, one glory of the moon, one glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. Now at this point, understand what Paul is saying. This creation is glorious. Sun, moon, and stars, fish, birds, and beasts, man, even the grain, has its own special kind of glory. But the glory that awaits you is far different. The glory that awaits you is not like all the glory that you see in the creation. Look at what he says. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man became a living being the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of the dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. As the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. 
Continue reading. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Notice corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I'll tell you a mystery. Something that you can't imagine. Something that is beyond our experience. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. We shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the summary of what Paul's saying. Right now, you have a shameful, disgraceful, corrupt, weak, dying body. When you are transitioned, God will give you a glorious, powerful, incorruptible, immortal body, just like the man from heaven. You will be transitioned from the state of grace to the state of glory. That's what Enoch enjoyed. He was immediately transitioned from the state of grace to the state of glory. And he enjoyed this by faith. Now God bestowed this favor on Enoch. And Paul goes through this description here to make the same point. Listen to what he says in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Remember what the author to Hebrews is encouraging the people to do. Endure. Persevere. Don't lose heart. There is a reward at the end of this. There is something coming that will fully compensate for all of the sufferings of this life. Enoch enjoyed it. Paul described it. Therefore, you do not lose heart. By faith, walk with God. Notice in Hebrews 11, Enoch is passive. It says that Enoch was taken away. God took him. He was taken. Enoch didn't have to do anything in this. It was the Lord who did it. This is a picture of faith. Faith looks to the promise and waits on God to fulfill the promise. And in the meantime, we walk as Enoch walked. It says he had the testimony that he pleased God. In Genesis, it says that he walked with God. This is a common expression for living the life of faith, trusting in God's promises, and following the way of his commandments. That's what it means to walk with God. As R.C. Sproul put it many times, this is living coram deo, before the face of God. That's what Enoch was doing. And God was pleased with this. The author shows us that it was Enoch's faith which pleased God. This faith was expressed in a life of humble obedience to God's ways and laws. 
But it was not the obedience alone. It was the obedience of faith that pleased God. Many make a mistake here. There is an obedience to God's ways which is not pleasing to him. Likewise, there is an obedience to God's ways that is pleasing to him. Psalm 51 shows us this. Turn to Psalm 51. Many passages that we could use to highlight this idea. Outward obedience to God's ways is not pleasing to God. Outward participation in the obedience to God's commandments does not please him. Only the heart of faith pleases him. This is what David speaks about in Psalm 51. Look at verse 16. He's repenting of his sins. He's confessing to God. And he recognizes, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. What is David saying? God commanded these offerings. And David's saying, but you don't want these things. You don't want my outward sacrifices. You want, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David recognizes that outward obedience without a contrite heart is worthless in God's sight. But with a contrite heart, with a heart of faith, with a heart that trusts in the promises, keep reading, verse 19, then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. You see the transition that David goes through. Outward obedience without a heart of faith is not acceptable in God's sight. A heart of faith that trusts in the promises then produces sacrifices that God is pleased with. That's what's going on here with Enoch. He has a heart of faith, he walks in God's commandments, and God says, I am pleased. Now we need to ask ourselves, do we walk in God's ways? As Enoch walked, do we live the way that Enoch lived by faith? Some of you perhaps might say, I think I do, I hope I do, I try to, I want to, I need to. All of these are admissions of guilt that we know we ought to be doing better. Let me show you a better way. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1 Peter 1.3. And we'll be brief as we bring this to a conclusion. 2 Peter 1.3, he writes, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Remember what the call of the gospel is. The call of the gospel is to give you glory by making you virtuous. 
by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Notice the place of promises here. And it's through the promises that we partake of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But for this very reason, giving all diligence to your faith add virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, self-control perseverance, perseverance godliness, godliness brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness love, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you trust in God's promises, if you hope to receive eternal glory, walk by faith in the ways of God. That's that's the same thing Peter is saying here. Give all diligence to walk in God's ways. And you will have an abundant supply into the kingdom of Christ. Now there's a danger here. It's a danger of the all too common idolatry of our day. Remember we talked about people that make gods after their own understanding. The idolatry is to focus on how this doctrine makes us feel rather than craft and then to craft a god according to our desires that suits us better. The doctrine I have just given you is the doctrine of perseverance and sanctification. It's the doctrine that by faith, walk in God's ways and He will bless you. There are many who have changed the gospel to mean nothing more than God forgives you and that's it. This is what Paul warns of in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. Don't turn there, but Paul says, Preach the word, for the time will come when they cannot endure sound doctrine. Having itching ears, they will find teachers to suit their own desires. That's the beginning of idolatry. The idol of today's church is a Jesus who draws sinners through the lust of the flesh and not the power of the Spirit. It is a Christ who dies and weeps and emotes, but doesn't rise and reign in command. It is a fable that we tell ourselves today that God is gracious and will forgive and love me for who I am. Brothers, these are lies. God does not love you for who you are. God loves you for his immeasurable and undeserved grace. He loves you because he is love. And calls you to the fellowship of his son. The Christ who saves is the Christ who commands. The Christ who lives is he who died and rose again and is returning to judge the living and the dead. Those that are pleasing in God's sight are those who walk in his ways by faith. Would you be pleasing in God's sight? The question should not be, what will this cost me? The question in our religion is not, cutting a deal with God. Well, I'll give you this much, but no more. Give me 90% of heaven, because I'm going to give you 90% of my life. 
It's all or nothing. The question is not what sacrifices will I need to make. The question should be, what will it profit me if I lose my soul? If I gain the entire world and yet in the end am damned to hell forever? That's the question we should ask ourselves. To walk as Enoch walked. To walk by faith requires self-denial. Christ said in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To walk by faith requires self-denial. You cannot be a Christian without denying yourself. You cannot walk the path to glory without denying yourself. Verse 6, he then gets to this point. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What does it mean to diligently seek something? It means to deny yourself for the sake of that thing. Athletes don't eat a lot of donuts. Musicians don't spend a lot of time on social media. We as Christians have been given a greater hope of reward, a more certain hope of glory than the athlete, and a more sure expectation than the musician. We have been given the hope of eternal glory. How diligent ought we to be in seeking after God? Because brothers and sisters, his promise is that he will reward you. He will bless you. He will give you eternal life if you believe in him. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His promise is the same as it has always been. And the faith which saves has always been the same. It was and ever it will be by faith alone that we are made pleasing to God. This is all that matters whether we are present or absent. As Paul says, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Christ. To do those things that are pleasing in His sight. To be made acceptable in His sight. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And those who will endure that judgment are those who walk by faith in the promise, being well-pleasing to him. Let us then by faith worship and work in such a way that we also will win the prize. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises and for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us by faith. For we confess that we often grow weary in well-doing. We often, like the psalmist, are downcast. Please lift us up by your promises, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.